Well, good morning. Take your Bible and, if you will, turn to um, all the way to the end, Revelation. We went through the book of Revelation a couple of years ago, but I want to revisit a particular passage there that I think is relevant to our season of our celebrations of where we're at. Susan and I collect nativity sets when we travel abroad on all the mission trips where we've gone. We make it our our attempt anyway to buy nativities. There's some countries, um, Afghanistan didn't have too many nativity sets in it. Um, interestingly enough, Thailand didn't either. There were there are countries where there aren't very many of them available. But we have nativities um, really from all over the place. And there are different places around our house, as are probably in your house as well, even even here in the church. And, um, you know, we've got Charlie Brown. We've got we've got them all. Um, and they're they're really cool. I mean, it's just it's, a, it's an important part of of our celebration of the coming of Christ at our house to have those. Um, and Christmas time, as it comes into our world, uh, is celebrated in different ways in different places. I think we all understand that. Today on the West Bank in Palestine, um, where Christians are less than two percent of the population, they're celebrating Christmas too, but they're doing it in a very different way. And they're doing it in a setting that I think is very similar to the one in which Jesus came that first advent. By that I mean here at Christmas time, normally Bethlehem is full of people. And I mean millions of people coming to visit the city, pilgrims, many of them, many of them just tourists. Um, they go into Bethlehem. There's TV cameras usually placed up on the highest buildings to look at all the crowds. There's a huge Christmas tree that towers in Manger Square. And at midnight at the church of, uh, at, the, at the church of the Nativity, which is built on the site that tradition says is where Jesus was born, at midnight there's that midnight mass. This year there's not going to be that mass. This year there's not the same celebration there on the West Bank. Newman, pull up that next slide. Um, there in the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the pastor there, Munther Isaac, is, is there at their nativity scene. It has been, as you can see, destroyed around their church. Um, and that little baby that's placed up there at the top of that pile of rubble um, was placed there symbolically. To help us remember, and I think it is for all of us to remember, that our Savior came into a war-torn, rubble-filled, sin-sick world. It is not, it was not, rather, um, silent night, holy night, where all is calm and all is bright. Uh, Our nativities mean well, but they're not an accurate picture of what the world was like then. As Jesus came into this world, really what the world is like has been like since Genesis chapter three. But that's what Christmas looks like in Palestine. That's what Christmas looks like in a lot of parts of our world. That's what Christmas looks like in some of your hearts and some of the circumstances of your life. And it's important for us to, as we just heard the choir sing, just sometimes get a reality check. 
and recognize Christmas from heaven's perspective. And I touched on this as we worked through the book of Revelation, but I wanted, I just felt it important to do it again, given what's going on in our world, given what's going on in, in a lot of people's lives. So turn to Revelation chapter 12. We don't normally look at this passage of scripture as a nativity story, but Eugene Peterson says it is a nativity story all the same. And it is a violent one. It is a violent nativity. I'm not going to take the time to go back and reset the context. Revelation 1 through 11 is one portion of the book of Revelation. And then chapter 12 on finishes out and and goes into detail to describe how and why what was seen in the first 11 chapters, how all that unfolded. One commentator has said that from Revelation 12 on to the end, it's about worship. Who will you worship? Who is on the throne of your heart? Who is it that is king of your life? And given this, let's just read there in chapter 12 a little bit of it. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on its heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this perspective. Thank you for opening up the veil. I mean, the word revelation, Lord, means to unveil and uncover. Thank you for uncovering for us a different perspective on the coming of Jesus. Lord, thank you for what this tells us. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak that into each of our hearts. And I pray that, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Some commentators have referred to what I just read as the apocalyptic Christmas story. 
And there's three main characters in it. I hope you picked up on that. There is an expectant mother. There is the great dragon. And there is a child, a male child, who is being born into this setting. And this whole picture before us gives us a picture of what Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, that we are not wrestling against or fighting against flesh and blood, as he says in describing spiritual warfare. He says it's not against that. It's against the rulers. It's against the authorities, he tells us. It's against cosmic powers in this present darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And I think Danny Aiken says it well in a little commentary that he did on the book of Revelation. The incarnation of the Son was nothing less than a declaration of war against Satan and his forces. A declaration of war. Now we understand, given the pictures that we see of the West Bank of Palestine, of Israel itself, we understand the pictures that we see in Ukraine and in Uganda and around the world, that this is a war-torn world. We recognize that. But again, the illustration that comes from World War II, I think, is a good reminder to us that for all practical purposes, World War II ended on D-Day. But there was still fight. There were still many battles. And there would still be casualties. But when the Allied forces landed there on the, on the coast of France, that was the end of the Third Reich. Everybody agrees on that. But there were still battles to be fought. When Jesus came... Wrapped in human flesh, the war was over, but there were still battles to be fought. And as we see this perspective of that battle, I think it's important for us just to, just to recognize it and to hear this, church. Hear this, Christian. Hear this, brothers and sisters in Christ. What we see here is to encourage us and to strengthen us in the reality of where we live and what goes on around us. To give us boldness in our testimony and to remind us of the cost that comes into our redemption. That we are, we are more than conquerors through the blood of Christ. And we have a wonderful message to share through the good news of his incarnation. So heaven's perspective on Christmas is kind of what's unfolded here in the first six verses here. And all that we see here is a fulfillment of God's promise. That's what we have been studying, is it not? As we've gone through First and Second Samuel, in God's promise to David that there would always be one of his descendants on the throne, which is a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, that through Abraham and his descendants there would be as many as the stars of the heaven, that from him kings would come, and through him all nations of the world would be blessed which is simply another fulfillment of the promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3. The promise that there would be enmity between the serpent and his offspring and between the offspring of Eve. Between that son of humanity. And there would always be enmity, but that that one who would come through her eventually would crush the serpent's head. All of those promises are fulfilled in that Christ child that we celebrate as we come to this season. And so we see that. And these three characters, I, I, I'm not going to take the time, the woman who is clothed, it says, with the sun, with the moon at her feet, her head of 12 stars, that reminds us, I think, to go back to this dream that we saw in Genesis, this dream where Jacob had this, where, he, where his offspring were pictured in this dream that Joseph had. 
And this is a picture the Catholics would say of Mary. But it's much more than Mary. Certainly that's one aspect of it. But there's much more here in this picture of a woman than just Mary as the mother of Christ. It is a picture, I believe, as we talk through Revelation, of, of true Israel. Of Israel who was hungry and searching for the Messiah. And even of the church. And this Messiah would come from her. And she's pregnant. She's groaning. Isaiah reminds us that, that Israel was groaning for the coming of the Messiah. And that's this picture of this woman waiting to give birth. But she's not the only one waiting. There's this grotesque, and it is grotesque, this picture of a dragon waiting to eat that baby as soon as it's born. And it should shock us. That's the whole point. This dragon stood before the woman about to give birth, and it is a great sign. There's signs through the rest of the book of Revelation, starting in verse 12, and two of them are right here. This woman, it is a sign of something, and this dragon who is a sign of something. Red, the color of murder and death, seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, authority and power that's given to him. Authority and power that we see later on in Revelation, he exercises to the point that it demands the worship of people. And they bow down to him. It's about worship. It's about who is on the throne. And this dragon is awaiting the birth of this child. And it has one goal in mind. One goal. And that is to consume this child. And it's the same goal that the enemies of God have had throughout the redemption story. And even through today. It's the same goal that's given for us. Look, look at how he is described. It's a great description. It's the most detailed description you'll find anywhere in the Bible of, of Satan. He is the red dragon. It says later on that... As he is standing there, he is the one. Well, let's skip down. I think I read it. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah. He's the accuser. I'm looking down at verse uh, 10. He's the accuser of our brethren who has been thrown down. So he's called the accuser. He's called the red dragon. He is called the ancient serpent. He is called the devil. He is called the deceiver of the whole world. All of those descriptions are what we see echoed again in the New Testament. He comes as, as the dragon. He comes as that ancient serpent who was in Genesis, deceiving Adam and Eve. He comes and described for us as the devil, whom Jesus says in John 8 is the liar and the father of lies. He is the devil. He is Satan who tempted Christ in the wilderness and who still tempts today. See, that's how Satan attacks. He tempts us and then accuses us. Tempts us and accuses us. And he's called that great accuser here. And he is the deceiver of the whole world. Which Paul reminded us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He is the God of this age who has blinded the minds of the unbeliever so that they cannot see the glory of Christ as they look upon God. They cannot see the glory of God even as they look upon God incarnate in Jesus. So he is the dragon, the serpent, the devil. He's Satan. He is the deceiver. And he is awaiting to do what he has set out to do from the very beginning. Think about it for just a second. What was his goal in Exodus? His goal in Exodus was to kill all of the Hebrew children. His goal in Exodus was to kill them, and there was one who survived. His goal in Genesis was that Cain would kill his brother. He's been a murderer from the very beginning. His goal was to have Saul kill David. 
That's always his goal. He moved Haman to plot genocide against the Jews in the book of Esther. He moved Herod to kill all of the young boy children when Jesus was born. He tempted Jesus in the wilderness, trying to pull him away from the father's plan. It's been his plan from the beginning. It's been his strategy from the beginning. We should not be in any way surprised at the wiles of the devil, it tells us. And here he is again, seeking to devour this child. He tried to do it when the enemies of Christ tried to stone Jesus and throw him over the cliff. He thought he had done it when they nailed Jesus to the cross. Surely this is it, he must have thought. But no. Amen. No. He can't do it. Because he has failed. And that's the picture of heaven's perspective of this battle that's gone on. And that authority, you know, sweeping with his tail and pulling a third of the stars or a third of the angels down from heaven. There's all kinds of debate on when this, is this the the, the one before history began? Is this that account that we read about in Isaiah and in Ezekiel where Satan rebelled against God and convinced three, a third of the angels to follow him? Is that it? Or is it at the incarnation itself when this is taking place? Or is it at some other time in the future, which we see in Revelation chapter 20? Now, my position was that it it looked at the incarnation. It looks at when Jesus came and declared war. That was that was kind of where I took it when we went through the book of Revelation. It really doesn't matter. The end is the same. The end is the same. And what is that end? Well, he is cast down five times in six verses. Thrown down. I love that. In fact, I think I used a WWE illustration now that I think about it when we were back in the book of Revelation. That this is just God's throw down. All right? I mean, it is, it is meant to be that. And he is thrown down, it tells us, over and over and over again. The gospel tells us, this is the news of the gospel. The gospel tells us that Satan is defeated through Jesus. He's defeated through the incarnation, through the cross, through the resurrection, and he's driven out of heaven and has been cast down to the earth. His picture being cast down ultimately even to Sheol. And that's the picture. That's the good news, church. That's the good news of Christmas, although it's not what we see or hear so often. I love what Tim Chester said about this. The reason Satan can no longer accuse is because God's people are now righteous. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Satan is defeated through the cross. The verdict has been given in the court of heaven. The prosecution case is rejected. And the prosecution counsel is silenced. Only the the defense counsel remains Jesus our advocate. The defendant is declared not guilty. There is no condemnation. And the archangel Michael is simply the bailiff carrying out the eviction that the judge has ordered. That's the picture that we see here in Revelation chapter 12. The accuser cannot accuse anymore because he is cast down, because he is defeated. Now, there is a war going on. You see that, right? From verse 7 on, there a war arose in heaven. And again, I think in some sense this is a timeless war. But this is time-capsulated in regard to the incarnation. And Michael and the angels of God... Maybe there were a few of them out there on the countryside singing and shouting to the shepherds. But there was a battle going on in the unseen places. And this battle that's going on, Satan is being defeated. And he's being thrown down. And here is the proclamation. 
The proclamation that echoed all through heaven, peace on earth and goodwill to men upon whom his favor rests is what we heard this side. What we hear on that side is now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Do you hear that? It's past tense. God's authority and kingdom is established as God took on flesh and infiltrated this world. And it wasn't infiltration. It wasn't a frontal assault. He came in clothed in human flesh, bringing about the kingdom and the power and the victory. And the accuser, the one who stood before God accusing in this mysterious picture of a conversation that we see in Job, he has been thrown down and he can no longer accuse Because those who have believed have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and through the word of their testimony. And they have loved their lives. They have not loved their lives, it says, even unto death. That's the picture of the victory. Heaven's victory over the accuser. And here's the assurance. This is the Christmas message that needs to be heard to that few number of Christians in Palestine. This is the message that needs to be heard from the house church. In China, who is under the heaviest oppression they've ever been under in history. This is what Christians in Africa need to hear as they are being killed by the thousands by radical Muslims and those who would seek to take their land. This is the message that needs to be heard in the Far East where radical Buddhists are killing pastors and those who follow them and burning their churches in India. This is the message that we need to hear. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. This is the central message in chapter 11 of Hebrew of of Revelation. And it is the central message of the gospel that in this crazy way of coming into the world, a baby, a baby into the nastiest of situations. When was the last time you were in a in a barn, in a in a pig pen, someplace like that? Oh, I know we keep our barns clean. I understand that it's healthy for our animals. That's not where Jesus was born. That's not the setting where the son of God left his glory and came into this world. He came into a sin sick, rubble filled, power hungry world. And he came announcing good tidings of great joy. Who will be to all who would believe. Satan's accusations are silenced. And those who would be accused. Those who would feel the guilt. Can be free from that through Christ. Through the promise that Jesus gives us. That's the message. That's what Martin Luther sung, right? Though this world with devils filled. Should threaten to undo us. We will not fear for God has willed his truth. To triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage. We can endure. For lo his doom is sure. One little word. Will fail him. That is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Bringing the light as Dallas and Maria shared with us earlier. That is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see God's grace and truth lived out before us in Christ. That's the picture that we have here. 
You know, JT shared you a minute ago this, this story of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It's cool because as I was preparing this message, I didn't know what the choir was going to sing, and I didn't know what he was going to say. We just talked about it a few minutes ago before we came in here this morning. Because I'd already reread the story of that Christmas carol that we sing, and it was in the middle of the Civil War that Henry Wordsworth Longfellow's oldest son snuck away to join the Union Army. His dad didn't know he was leaving. He didn't know he was going to join the Army. And while he was in the Army, he got sick with what's called camp fever. It was probably typhoid, and he almost died from that. And he came home and recovered there for months and then went back to the battle. And there he was wounded. In fact, the 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 telegram that Henry Wordsworth Longfellow got was that his son had been severely wounded, shot through the face is what the telegram said, but he wasn't. He was shot through one shoulder, it exited out the other, and it missed his spinal column by less than an inch, the doctor said. Longfellow had just buried his wife, as J.T. shared. She was trying to clean her youngest daughter's quilt and her gown draped over a candle that was lit and it set her on fire. And Wordsworth put her fire out trying to save her life and burned his face so bad that all of the pictures we see of him now have a beard. He never again went without a beard because of the burn scars on his face from trying to save his wife's life. But he didn't. That's the context. That's the war that was raging in his heart and in his soul. As he sat at his desk, it says... On December the 25th, and he was listening to the bells ringing at the, at the chapel there. And this 57-year-old widowed father of six wrote that poem that we sing. The choir didn't sing all of the verses. You're familiar with them. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing and singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south with the sound of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth and goodwill to men. That next verse says, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's what Revelation 11 teaches us. That's not the picture we'll necessarily see in our nativities. But when we see a baby depicting the cross child laying on top of a pile of rubble in a Palestinian Christian church, it's a good reminder of the world that our Jesus came into. And he came into knowing it was a stinking mess. And he came into it to demonstrate that love of God 
That love that God so loved broken sinners like us that He gave His Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. Would not be overcome by the rubble. Would not be buried underneath it. But would have life and have it eternal. The Son came that we might have life and have it abundantly. The dragon comes to steal and kill and destroy. But he is cast down. Amen? He is cast down. That's the good news that we have to share. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a heavenly perspective on the reality of the world that we live in. Lord, we we didn't finish out the story, but we know that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to come back and return in a mighty, majestic way. And this dragon will be cast down and put down eternally. And that those who are clothed in the blood of the Lamb, those who are clothed in your righteousness, Lord, will stand with you and reign forever. And we thank you for that. Thank you that death does not have the last word for those who have trusted in the one who defeated death. Thank you that the accuser's words mean nothing when they come toward those who have been forgiven by Christ and are resting in his righteousness. Lord, thank you that your hope undergirds and anchors our soul in an empty tomb and a resurrected Lord who is going to return someday. And Father, I thank you for that. Lord, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our just the, the tendency that we have, Lord, to keep our eyes and uh, focused on other things besides Christ. God, help us, I pray. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Yes, Lord, you came as a baby. Next time it'll be different. And we thank you that you are our king ringing in now. And so help us to worship you with how we live, how we work, and what we say and in all that we do. Because you are worthy of that. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And we pray that you'll help us through the power of your spirit, give you all power and glory and honor and dominion. It is yours. Help us confess that with our lives and with our words. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.